0: I think so many of us have come to church this morning with something of a somberness. And um, I know I came with a bit of a heavy heart. What we need this morning is not just to hear um, the opinions of man. We're not just here to be inspired or to hear a prep talk. We need to hear God and encounter God. And so let's come before Him in prayer. And... um, I want to encourage you to listen to this prayer that I've written for us and let's try and make it our own as much as possible and then we'll listen to the reading of God's Word. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, loving Lord, we come to you this morning not in strength but in weakness. Father, we come not confident or self-assured, Many of us come conflicted and afflicted and hurting, unsure of ourselves, unsure of how to make sense of the pain in our city, unsure of how to respond to what we see and experience around us. Oh Lord, Father, we are broken, God, by the hatred and the anger, anger that we see, and we don't know how to respond, God, to so much of what's going on in our city and of what we are witnessing. Father, we don't know how it's going to end. God, we come to you this morning stripped of answers, stripped of any semblance of wisdom, stripped of any self-confidence, and Father, we feel like we've been laid low. How long, O Lord, how long? As the psalmist tells us, God, we are weary with our groaning. We are worn out with anxiety. We are tired and exhausted, and our fears, God, are overwhelming. How long, O Lord, how long? And so, Heavenly Father, we've come to you this morning because we have nowhere else to turn. We come to you this morning because nothing else will answer our concerns. God, you have the words of life. Your Spirit speaks our hearts. And because despite everything we see around us, we believe that you, God, are truth, you are light, you are sovereign, and that our lives are in your hands, God. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we long for you to speak to us. We long for you, God, to make sense of what we're struggling to make sense of. Father, we need you to pour faith into our hearts and to lift our sights onto you. And so, God, we come to you this morning because you are God and we are not. We come to you, God, because you are on your heavenly throne and have not been displaced. We come to you, God, because in you there is perfect justice. Oh, God, who is there like you? Who else can give our hearts peace like you? Who else will establish justice and righteousness like you? Who can keep people safe like you? Who can give us true freedom and hope like you? Oh, Lord God, this morning we've come to declare that, Father, despite what we see around us, there is no one and none like you. And our hearts and our hope are found in you, Lord God. This morning we join with the whole host of heaven, declaring that salvation belongs to our God and that our God reigns. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive our worship, glory, honor, and praise, both today in the city of Hong Kong, all around the world, and for all eternity. We pray these things in your powerful, your glorious, and your trustworthy name, Amen. Amen. Pui and Betty you're going to come and read to us. And this morning, we've got a long reading. We are reading two full chapters of the book of Revelation, so I want to encourage you to listen up. There's a lot of interesting terminology and symbolism, but let's listen to God's word being read to us.
1: The scripture reading comes from Reve- excuse me, Revelation chapters 6 and 7. Please follow along in your booklets or on the screen. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red,
2: A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine.
1: When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice,
2: O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?
1: Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads.
2: And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation
1: blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.
2: Then one of the elders addressed me, saying,
1: Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come?
2: I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me,
1: These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
2: This is the word of God.
0: Great. Thank you, Betty and Pui, for that long reading, and um, thanks so much. Well, we, uh, if you're new to Watermark, we are working our way through the book of Revelation, and uh, I heard recently that somebody said they did some research uh, in the U.S., and the book of Revelation is one of the books of the Bible that most Christians want taught to them and explained, and it's the one book of the Bible that most pastors don't want to go anywhere near and uh, I can understand why. Uh, this week I said to Oscar, I said, why on earth did we choose Revelation? It's, this passage has beaten me up this week. And um, we're starting to get to the interesting parts of it, with, with interesting symbolism, and so let's see if we can try and make sense of it today. There's a lot in here, and um, so let's go for it. Um, this week and next week are going to be particularly challenging and for two reasons. One, because the symbolism is so strange. They're these strange horsemen and all sorts of things and moons that are turning blood and stuff. And so that's challenging. But then secondly, when we actually try and understand it, the message itself is challenging. It's a hard message to receive. And so um, I really do pray and trust that God will use his word to speak to us, to both encourage us and to challenge us. Now, if you look back on the history of the world, and especially the last century, you'll see that our world has, in the last century, had great moments of, of wonderful moments of human achievement, technological advancement, uh, scientific, medicinal s- discoveries that have benefited human life. But at the same time, if we honest and look back, in the same period of time, many of those scientific discoveries and technological advances have also been used to bring great harm and destruction on the world. And so we think of even just, for instance, the invention of the airplane, what a great benefit that's been, but at the same time, how that was used in so many wars to bring about great heartache and destruction. We think of the World War I and World War Two in the last century. Think of the Holocaust. We think of Pol Pot and his regime in Cambodia in the 1970s. Two million Cambodians were killed. We think of the terrors in Africa, the many, many civil wars, the Rwandan genocide. We think of the chaos in the Middle East, the famine in Oman at the moment as a result of war. And if we who live in Hong Kong... Uh, ever felt, oh, we are fortunate to live in the safe and secure society, the last three months itself has challenged that idea that actually we do live in a broken world, and our world is full of tears and heartache. Now, for the Christians in first century Rome, their story was very similar because the Roman Empire was one that promised great blessing. The Pax Romana promised relative stability and peace throughout the Roman Empire. Rome had... uh, secured relative financial prosperity for its citizens, there was infrastructural discoveries like the highways and the aqueducts, and so for the Roman Empire, there was much blessing for those that enjoyed it. But at the same time, there was an ugly underbelly to the Roman Empire, because as their hunger for expansion grew, so did the consequences of that, slavery, injustice, corruption, death and destruction. And so the story of the first century and the church that Jesus writes to in Revelation is very or not too dissimilar from actually our own world. We see this growth and in, in development, but at the same time, this brokenness in our world. Now, if we were to ask an artist to paint us an impression of the last century, I wonder how he would do that. What would an artist's impression of the last century, of all that we've described, look like? Well, actually, there's an artist that did that, and his name is Pablo Picasso. In 1939, he painted a very famous painter called, uh, painting called Granica, I think that's how you say it, and uh, we've got a picture of it somewhere up here. And uh, The story behind this is that two years previously, in 1937, there's a Spanish war going on, and uh, German bombers came and flew over the Spanish town of Granica... ...bombing its citizens and the streets of Granica. But what was happening was actually a lot of the... ...Hitler and his military strategists... ...were actually practicing their military strategy... ...for what they would then employ in the world war that was coming up. And so what happened was the citizens of this town... ...the fighter jets come and bomb the town. They all run and take cover... They stay undercover for 15, 20 minutes or so, an hour, and as they come back into the streets when they think it's calm again, the planes come a second time round and bomb them again, and thousands of people die in the Spanish town. And so Pablo Picasso paints this picture called Granica. It's a gross picture that's full of catastrophe and chaos and body parts, now Picasso's picture doesn't represent history like a photograph does, or like a newspaper report, but it does convey something of the horror and the the chaos that took place in this town just a few years before. In a similar way, this is what the passage in the book of Revelation is like. Jesus, through the apostle John, is trying to give us a picture, an artist's impression of the story of the world. But he's not giving us a newspaper account, or he's not giving us a history book account. It's this artistic impression that's full of imagery and strange symbols and chaos and destruction and moons that are turning to blood and the stars are falling. It's an artist impression that conveys the story of the world and is meant to elicit our emotions to understand what God is trying to say. Now, as we get into the next couple of chapters, the book of Revelation has this series of sevens. In chapter 6 and 7 that we look at today, there are seven seals on this parchment. In chapter 8 and 9, there are seven trumpets that are blown. In chapter 11, we see seven thunders. And in chapter 15 and 16, there are seven bowls that are poured out with these seven plagues. Okay? Now, John is not trying to predict the future. He's not a fortune teller. He's not trying to give us chronological account of the world. And so some people say, okay, what are the seven seals? You know, this is... Nero, and then this is this event, and then we go to the trumpets, and then chronological. That's not what's happening. What John is saying is he's saying the story of the world. Remember, God's trying to peel back the curtain so we can see the world from heaven's perspective. He's saying the story of the world, it's a bit like this, but it's also a bit like this, and it's also a little bit like this. In other words, all the series of seven are the same story of the world from a different angle. It's like, as Chris explained a few weeks ago, you're watching a sports game, your team scores a try or scores a goal, and there's this camera angle that shows it from this angle, and then they show the same event from this angle, and then they show the same event from this angle this action replay. That's what the book of Revelation is really about. It's going to show us the story of the world from all these different angles so that we can see it from heaven's perspective. And so today we get to the first of these, seven, these series of sevens and the images of a parchment or a scroll that's been rolled up. And in the ancient time when a scroll was rolled up, it had these wax seals put upon it to keep it from praying eyes and from You know, those that weren't meant to look inside. And so there's this scroll, and each time a seal, Jesus, breaks open one of these wax seals, some cataclysmic event happens on the earth. And so that's the background behind our passage. Now, last bit of introduction before we get to the passage today. In order to really understand this section, we need to follow the flow of thought through the book of Revelation. And so very briefly, I'm going to recap. Remember, chapter 1 We see this vision of Jesus in all his glory. We sang about it earlier. Jesus with eyes like fire, burnished bronze feet, voice like rushing waters, and Jesus in all his glory. Chapter two and chapter three, Jesus then writes these letters, or a letter, to these seven churches in Revelation. And the reason is because these churches, same as our church today, are facing two challenges. The one challenge is to become just like the culture in which it finds itself, to become syncretistic or to accommodate the culture, to be seduced by the power and the prestige and the glamour of Rome, and to try and find their hope and confidence in the culture in which they find themselves. But the other challenge the churches were facing was to say, no, we're not going to compromise like that. We're going to stand firm. But the church was so small, it felt insignificant. And how was the church ever going to stand up against the power and the machine of the Roman Empire? And so Jesus writes to them and he says, Don't be overwhelmed or over-seduced by the culture in which you find yourselves. But also don't be overwhelmed with fear by the power of Rome. Stay faithful to me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. I am your hope. And Jesus, at the end of each letter, he says this, this one refrain, to the one who overcomes, to those that endure to the end, to those who conquer, I promise life and blessing and reward. And so Jesus writes these letters to saying, stay faithful in the midst of the culture and the midst of fear and anxiety, keep your eyes fixed on me. And then chapter four, we saw this vision of Jesus of God and all his glory on the throne, All creation, all angels bowing down to him, worshiping him, not for what he's done, but simply for who he is. And then chapter five, Colin brought to us two weeks ago, not only God on the throne, but Jesus is there right next to him. And Jesus is worthy of all worship and all honor and all glory, not only because of who he is, but because of what he's done, because he died on the cross to save you and I. And so as the church in Asia minor, reads this revelation of God on the throne, and Jesus is there next to him, the thought that must have come to their mind was, come on, what's there to worry about? We've got this thing. If this God who is on the throne of all the universe is on our side, and we're on his side, we're indestructible. Like, this is a done deal, right? What's there to worry about? And Jesus now writes to his church to show them that just because he's on the throne doesn't mean that there's not going to be any difficulty in the world in which they live. Because Jesus writes them to show them that although his kingdom has already come, it hasn't yet fully come in all its fulfillment. Jesus saying, I came and I brought my kingdom, it's already here. But I haven't yet come, when I come a second time, it will be fully established. Jesus hasn't fully overthrown all his enemies yet. Now that day is coming when he returns, but we live as Christians in this weird overlap of the already and the not yet. His kingdom has come, but it hasn't yet fully come. And so we find ourselves in this interesting stage in redemptive history where Jesus is on the throne, but there's still difficulty and chaos and trouble in our world. Does that make sense? And so now, the next 10 chapters of Revelation, Jesus is writing to show his church and to give them hope in the midst of this season in which they find themselves, the midst of the already and the not yet. Okay? And so let's go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. John looks, and this is what he says Now I watched. And when the lamb, the lamb is Jesus, okay, Jesus who died and came alive again, when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come, and I looked and behold, a white horse, its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquest. And John looks and he sees these four horses, okay, he sees again another, Jesus opening the seal. And there's another horse comes, a red horse, which is symbolism of blood and war and um, armies and conquest. He sees another, there's another seal is opened, and another horse comes. It's a black horse, it's a picture of famine and economic injustice and inequality. Interesting, look here. There's a voice in voice six, in verse six, it says, A quarter of, of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not touch the oil and the wine. Do you know what's going on there? When war comes, what happens? There's famine, right? And so the price of staple foods goes through the roof. And so the two staple foods here, wheat and barley, the price has just exponentially gone through the roof. It's like 15 or 20 fold what it normally is. And so the people, the, the, the staple food, the prices have just gone through the roof. But someone says, don't touch the price of the oil and the wine. Why not? Why not? The oil and the wine are commodities that the upper class, the aristocrats, get. And so the price of that the poor and the marginalized have to eat, the staple foods has gone through the roof, but somehow those that are in power and control are controlling the prices of the high end, the caviar and the champagne, so that their income isn't affected, but the the income of the poor and the marginalized is affected. It's a picture of, of inequality and injustice. And then a fourth horse comes, and it's a pale horse and it's a picture of death and disease and destruction now straight away when we read this one of the things that should impact us is who is the one that's bringing this about who's the one that's allowing this to happen it's jesus right jesus is the one that's opening the seals and is one of the creatures around his throne that is calling this forth what on earth is happening why is it that god allows this to happen Isn't God's job just to keep peace on earth and to rid the world of problems? Isn't God the big guy in the sky and his job is to make sure there's no difficulty in the world and just everything is happy and fine? Well, friends, that understanding of God is a very simplistic or shallow reading of the scriptures God is working all things, not just simply to bring peace and comfort and happiness in the world. God is working all things for his purposes. And his purpose is not simply world peace or my happiness or your convenience. His purpose is establishing his kingdom and putting his glory on display. And that's why as confusing and as challenging as it may be, part of the reason why we're in this already and not yet stage in the history of the world is God is strategically working all things to bring his purposes to pass, not simply our comfort and our convenience. Remember at the end of Jesus' life, he's about to go to heaven and his disciples say to him, Jesus, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? You've died and you've risen again. Now's a good time to vanquish your enemies and to restore all things. And Jesus' answer is, it is not for you to know the times and the season that my father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is saying that until he returns, we are still living in this ambiguous season when his kingdom has come, but it hasn't fully come, and when he rules, but he doesn't fully rule as he one day will. Remember how Jesus said this just to his disciples, before he went to the cross, he said, You will hear rumors of wars and wars coming. See that you are not alarmed. This must take place. But the end has not yet come. Nation will rise up against nation. Kingdom will rise up against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. There will be destruction in various places. All these things are just the beginning of the birth pains. And this is exactly what John sees in chapter 6. Jesus is telling the church in Asia Minor what he's taught his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, there will be difficulty. He has not yet utterly removed wickedness and evil. But, says Jesus, do not fear. This world is not your home. In verse 13, he says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus says to the seven churches. He's calling them and he's calling us to neither compromise by finding our hope in the systems of this world, nor to cower away in fear, thinking that all is lost, but to keep our eyes fixed on him who is on the throne. In this world you will have trouble, says Jesus, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Your life is found in me. Okay, so that's the first four of these seals. John looks again and he sees a fifth seal broken open. And look at what happens. John sees what he says of the souls in verse 9. Of those that have been killed, they are martyrs because they've held on to the word of God. And the testimony that Jesus is who he said he is. Which tells us that Christians are not immune from the wickedness and the destruction in our world. Jesus tells us that standing for righteousness, for truth... For justice, it may invite wickedness to come your way. And that's the whole challenge that these seven churches kept on facing. This was the constant challenge. Will they avoid difficulty? Will they avoid suffering by just assimilating into the culture, by trusting in in Rome, by becoming just like the citizens of its city? Will they assimilate into it and avoid difficulty? Or will they cower away and hide and, and try and preserve their lives? And Jesus says... That by declaring that Jesus is Lord, not Domitian, not Rome, not the emperor, that Jesus, Lord, will invite difficulty into your life. It will cost you something. That to be faithful, even to death, will, Jesus says, will you be faithful? Or will you shrink back and preserve yourself? Friends, is it any different in our age? Of course Not. Jesus asks us the same question today. Will we assimilate into our culture and become just like the citizens of our city and avoid persecution? Or will we shrink back and quieten our voice? Or will we stick to the truth that Christ is Lord and stand for him, even though it may cost us dearly? Look at verse 10. They say here, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? How long will you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, Jesus, how long must we wait until you bring justice, until you crush your enemies, until you establish justice on the earth? How long until you hold wickedness to account? How long, O Lord, must we wait? You see, what's happening to the Christians here is that justice has been denied to them on earth. They know that in the courts of heaven, the only courts that really count, that in the end of the day, justice will come. The injustice that they experience on earth for standing for truth will be overturned and justice will be done. And are they defeated? Yes, on earth they're defeated. Their lives are taken from there. But in heaven, they are given the victory. Look at verse 11. They are given white robes, a symbol of victory and vindication and life. Because what appears like their lives have been cut short and wasted is actually their victory. And so what is God's answer to their question, how long? They are told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus in heaven has this KPI of how many martyrs. He needs to reach, right, until the end of the age. Jesus doesn't have a target that he's waiting for and saying the number hasn't got there. What Jesus is saying is this. My purposes and my plans are still rolling forward. And they will not be delayed, but they will not be brought forward. I will accomplish my purposes in my time. And in my plan, there is still more room for martyrs to lose their life. That happened in first century Rome. And friends, it's still happening today. The time has not yet come. Now, that may seem like such a waste. These men, these women, losing their lives for the gospel. But John says their lives are not wasted. Because what may appear like them simply their lives have simply been taken from them, like in some senseless murder, that's actually not the case. Look, where does John see these lives? Where are they in heaven? Look at verse 9. He says they are standing, they are right by the altar, which means their lives have been offered up to God as an offering of sacrifice. They are an offering, there's something beautiful about it. John Piper, in one of his um, talks many years ago, he very famously told the story. It's a true story. He said, two ladies, single ladies in their 70s, foreign missionaries in a foreign land. And one day they're going about their business and some catastrophe happens and they both lose their life. They're driving their car on this mountain ridge to get to a village to go and share the gospel. The brakes in their car fail. They go over the edge. And both of these ladies in their 70s die. Is that a tragedy? Asks John Piper. And the answer is a resounding no. What a way to go to glory. What a way to spend your life to offer up your life for the cause of Christ. John Piper then says, two people retire at the age of 60 and they spend the best decades of their life taking walks on the seashore and collecting seashells. Is that a tragedy? And the answer is a resounding yes. What a way to spend the finest last decades of your life taking walks on the seashore, collecting seashells and drinking skinny cafe lattes what better way to spend your life than to pour it out as an offering to God here are these martyrs that have been killed for the cause of Christ their lives have been taken to them and it's not a waste for all eternity their lives will count because they've offered them up to God I wasn't going to tell the story but let me just tell the story 1555. Two men, two bishops in London, are arrested for preaching the gospel. A man called Nicholas Ridley and Bishop Latimer. And as they're tied to the stake, there some hay is put around their feet, and they're about to be lit. the The hay bales are lit, and Ma, uh, Bishop Latimer turns to the young man, Master Ridley. Nicholas Ridley is fearful. He's in his 40s. He's about to lose his life. And Bishop Ridley says to him, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. This very day we shall light a candle in England, as I hope by God's grace shall never be put out. Friends, what kind of man, as the flames are starting to end his life and burn his legs, can say, Be of good cheer? It's somebody who knows that he's not wasting his life as he lays it down for the cause of Christ. That brings us to the sixth seal. In this one chapter, on the one hand we're told that we are living the already and the not yet. we have being told that there will still be more martyrs. The time that, but we're also told that the time of Christ's judgment has not yet fully come. But on the other hand, we're now shown that those who do spend their lives for Christ that those who experience the injustice of this world, that those who don't fight back and try and preserve their lives, but offer it to God in the face of wickedness and oppression, and who offer up their lives as an offering, justice is coming. And the reason is because God's final judgment day is coming. And that's what the sixth seal is all about. Let's look at it together. Look at verse 13 with me. There's this strange language of the sun. Uh, the full mean the moon becoming like blood, the stars falling from the sky, and the sun turning black Now that refers to two things on the one hand, it refers to the false gods and the idols that were being worshipped in the ancient world in the ancient world. What were the the, the gods of creation that loved to be worshiped? It was the sun, the moon, and the stars right. Jesus says, in the final account, at the end of the ages, what's going to happen to those things that the ancients loved to worship? They're going to be swept aside. And so will those who trust in them. They will be exposed, nothing left to show for it. Tim Chester makes the point where he says, Today the sun, moon, and stars have been replaced by money, sex, and power in humanity's list of favored deities. But one day these two will be swept aside. And friends, all those who trust in them will be exposed. But the other thing that this refers to is that in the Old Testament, this graphic language of the sun and the moon and the stars falling was symbolic of empires and kingdoms being brought to an end and especially God bringing these empires and these kingdoms to an end and Jesus is showing John yes it looks like Rome is all-powerful yes it looks like martyrs are never going to be vindicated yes it looks like the church is insignificant and poor and, and powerless against the machine of the Roman Empire but just wait That's not how the story ends. Ultimately, no kingdom, no dynasty, no empire will last forever. There is coming a day where every empire will be brought to its knees. And so what happens in the end? When Christ establishes his kingdom, all those who looked invincible, kings and premiers and emperors and governors and military leaders, all the way down to slaves and former slaves, all people everywhere will cower and flee in terror before the awesomeness and the majesty and the glory that is God. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, but also slaves and the free, hid themselves in the caves and amongst the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him, who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, from the great for the great day of His wrath has come, and who can stand? And friends, that is the momentous question. In the face of final judgment, when every emperor and empire, when every president and every premier, will, fi- um, in the most awesome and ter- in the face of the most awesome and terrifying authority of the world and the face of God will run for their lives. The question is this, who can stand? Who can stand? Now, before we get to the final seal in chapter 8, there's an interlude. And chapter 7 answers the question of who can stand. Let's look at verse 1 together. Verse 1 of chapter 7, after this, John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Then I saw another angel ascending with the seal of God, and he called in a loud voice saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Who can stand? Those that have been sealed with the seal of God. It's a picture of, remember in Exodus God comes and he's delivering his people. He's going to save his people by the blood of the lamb. But at the same time, he's bringing judgment. The angel of death is going to come to Egypt and bring judgment on the nation of Egypt. But his people are going to be saved. How are they going to be saved? By the blood of the lamb that's been painted on the doorposts of their house. They've they've painted, as it were, a seal on their house so that when the angel of death comes, it passes over because they've got a seal over them. John is saying the same thing. He's saying, who in the day of final judgment, who can stand? When God's judgment comes upon the earth, who will stand? Those that have been sealed by their God. And now for the second time in Revelation, John hears one thing, and as he turns around, he sees something different. Remember in chapter 5, Colin preached it two weeks ago. John hears the Lion of Judah, and as he turns to look at the Lion He doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. Well, the same thing happens here. John hears a voice and saying, those that are sealed will stand in the day of great judgment. The 144,000. Now, what's 144,000? What does it mean? Well, remember, in the book of Revelation, the symbol 12, the number 12 is symbolic. The 12 apostles of the New Testament, the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, times a thousand. In other words, the 144,000, those that are sealed, the complete... Number of God's people will stand in the day of judgment. Not one will be missing. Friends, you may be here, a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've sinned tragically. Maybe you've done some dumb thing and you feel so guilty and you feel like God will kick me out of his kingdom. In that final day, I will be destroyed by God. No, not 139,999. Not one will be missing. Because your eternal destiny doesn't depend on your righteousness; it depends on are you sealed by the blood of the Lamb. On that great day, every single one of God's people—not one will be missing—will stand before the throne. John hears this number: God's people sealed. And then, when he turns around to look at this crowd of one hundred forty-four thousand, what does he see? He sees a multitude a multitude that is so vast it cannot be numbered. He sees a multitude of people from every tribe and every language group and every people group and every ethnicity and every culture. In other words, the greatest form of diversity you can imagine from all over the globe, and they are unified together before the throne of the Lamb. There before the throne you have Hong Konger, And mainland Chinese. Black, white, Chinese. Rich and poor. Educated and uneducated. Friends, can I say, on the great day before the throne of God, there may be policemen and protesters standing shoulder to shoulder before the Lamb of God, before the throne, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There will be a great multitude of every person from every people group, those that have trusted in Christ. And how did they get there? Some of them are there because of the martyrs. Some of them are there because they did not love their lives and they were willing to speak the truth of the gospel. They were there because they... Because the martyrs went out. And so here's the big idea of this whole two-chapter passage. It's taken us 30 minutes to get here. The big idea of this. In this world, friends, we will have trouble. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be destruction and wickedness. There's going to be injustice and inequality. There's going to be heartache and there's going to be pain. Even as we witness what's going on in our city at this time. But that's not the end of it. We live in a broken world and we've contributed to brokenness. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the temptation may be to make peace with the systems of this world in order to preserve our lives or to maximize our own security or to avoid discomfort. But the systems of this world are failing. They are absolutely failing. And every single system, every political system Every economic system, every civil system, every educational system, even every religious system that is not centered on he who is on the throne is going to end up in self-destruction. Absolutely failing. It's absolutely going to come to an end. And one day, every one of those systems will be shown for what they are. And what's more is that they're going to be held accountable to the judge of all the earth. And so will those who trust in them. But there is another way. There is another way, and that's to trust the one who is on the throne, to live our lives by his story, to be centered on him, and to give our lives to him, even as it costs us dearly. The only way to stand in the day of great judgment, and the only way for the things that we give ourselves to not end in self-destruction, is to be centered on he who is at the center of all creation. And so finally, look at verse 13. Says One of the elders addressed me and said this, who are those clothed in white robes? And from where do they come? I said, sir, you know. He said, those are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Tribulation means difficulty. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, on the final day, when all wickedness is held accountable, when every bit of evil is finally and fully held to account, when perfect justice will be meted out, who will stand? Who will stand in that day? Well, the Bible actually gives us two answers. And the first answer it gives us is no one will stand. Not you, not me, not the Pope, not Mother Teresa, not the most moral, upright person you can imagine. No one will stand before the awesomeness of our God. No one should stand. Friends, if you're new to church this morning, One of the things you'll quickly discover about this church is that we are made up of 100% sinners, every one of us, from the pastors and the elders to everyone else. None of us can stand before the awesomeness of our God. But that's not the answer that is given here in Revelation. The answer that's given here is that those who stand the great day of God's judgment are those who are gathered around the throne and are standing in robes of white, They're not there because of their religious devotion. That doesn't save anyone. They're not there because they're more moral than anyone else. That doesn't save anyone. They're not there because they gave money to the church. That doesn't save anyone. They're not there because they are nicer or kinder or generally better people than anyone else. That doesn't save anyone there. They are there because they have been washed in the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain for them. Remember Psalm 130? If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who, O God, could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Friends, this is our only hope. If it's not for the blood of Jesus, none of us could stand. None of us could be accepted. None of us could be welcomed. If it's not for the blood of Jesus, you and I would stand fully accountable before the throne of God and be held accountable for every word that we've said, every thought that we've thought, every action we've done and inaction that we haven't done. But for those who come to Him, who put their hope in Him, we are washed, cleansed, justified, sanctified in the blood of the Lamb. Who can stand? those that have come through the great tribulation, those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And finally in chapter 8, we see the seventh seal is open. And when the seventh seal is open, there is silence in heaven. Absolute silence. And it's a picture of how God's justice is finally there. Peace has finally come to the earth. Every tear has been wiped away. Every bit of wickedness has been destroyed. Every bit of evil has been done away with. Everything that is wrong with our world has been done undone. Finally, utter peace has come to creation. As we close, Tim Chester, in his book, he tells the story. He says that in... in in Rome, in the first century, there was this quasi-military fire service, okay, fire brigade service, and um, there has a monument survives today that has a list of the thousand names that were part of this fire brigade service, and on this monument has the list of these thousand names, and it's got the names of the ten centurions. Remember, centurion is somebody who looked after a hundred. Soldiers. And so it's got the list of these thousand soldiers, the ten um, centurions, but also where the ten centurions came from in the Roman Empire. And as you read this list, you see that these centurions came from all over Europe modern day Bulgaria, Slovenia, Venice, Hungary, all over Europe, these people flocked to Rome and joined the military service. Rome was a city in the ancient world which was constantly attracting immigrants to come to it. And part of the reason was because more people died in Rome than were born in Rome. And so if Rome, the city, didn't constantly fill up its population With immigrants, the population would dwindle and would die out. And so Rome was constantly filling up its population with these immigrants. But the problem was Rome was also susceptible to malaria and all sorts of diseases. And so people would come from other parts of the Roman Empire. They didn't have immunity from these diseases, and they would die within a short few years. And so one historian, Mary Beard, put it like this. She says, Rome simply swallows people up. It's a city which, is, which consumes people and spews them out dead. Here is the greatest city of the world in its time. The, the, the most powerful city of the world. The, the leader of the Roman Empire. It's the city that everybody flocks to to find work and safety and security. It's a, it's a city that swallows people up. It consumes them and spews them out dead. Much like many of the modern cities of our world. Tim Chester says, in the book of Revelation, we come across another city, another empire. And it's also a city which draws people from every single nation. Black, white, Chinese, rich and poor. But around the throne of the Lamb, these people find life. Friends, the cities and the systems of our world are going to self-destruct. It doesn't matter what system you trust in. If it's not the system, the city of the Lamb, it's going to self-destruct. But here we see in the book of Revelation, there is another empire, and it's attracting people from all over the world. And in this empire, in this city, its citizens find life. That's the great challenge and the invitation of Revelation for all of us today. Which kingdom are we a part of? Which kingdom are we giving ourselves to? Jesus and John invite us to come and center our lives, To offer up our lives, yes, as a sacrifice, yes, it will cost us, but also in great joy to the one who is worthy, to the lamb who is slain, who lives forever and ever, that in his presence, we may find life. Let's come to him now. Let's come and pray. Let's pray together, and I want to invite the band to come and lead us. And as the band come, I want to invite us, if you want prayer for anything, there will be a prayer team that would love to come and pray with you. The elders, maybe you can make yourselves available to come and be at the front. If anyone would like prayer, please do come up the front. We'd love to pray for you. Last Saturday night at our retreat, we had an amazing time of just praying together. And uh, it was such a rich time of just being in God's presence and standing as brothers and sisters, praying for one another. Friends, if you, this morning you feel anxious, you feel weary, you feel fearful, you feel overwhelmed, come, we'd love to pray with you. Father, we come to you this morning. We acknowledge, God, that the, church, the temptation that the church has felt in the first century is the same temptation we feel. God, to either shrink into our culture and to try and preserve ourselves by becoming just like our culture, or to try and preserve preserve ourselves by shrinking back and fearfully not declaring the truth of the gospel, God. God, you call us in days like today, in times in which we find ourselves to fix our eyes on you. And so we come to you, God. We come to you now. Father, you've shown us this morning that, yes, this world is full of wickedness and evil still. Yes, this world, there's wars and rumors of wars. There's kingdom rising against kingdom and destruction. But God, in the end, you and your people will stand. Oh Christ, help us to trust you, we pray. Father, open our eyes to see you and to trust you, we pray. help us to see that our lives are not in our own hands but they are in your hands that God we are part of an eternal kingdom Father help us to trust you we pray this week God as we are as we go to work as we encounter the difficulties that our city is going through we pray God that we'll trust you Lord help us oh Lord Where our faith is failing, where we feel overwhelmed by fear, help us to trust you, God. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Come and have your way. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.